Welcome to episode 28 of History of the Marine Corps. Our last episode discussed some of the consequences the Penobscot expedition had on Continental Marines. This included the decline of enlistment numbers for Marines and leadership's reluctance to launch another full-scale amphibious landing. This will eventually lead to Marines being disbanded. This episode will take a slight detour and discuss the rarely talked about privateer and state Marines. We will also discuss the fate of the last two remaining ships. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. This is the second to last episode on Marines in the American Revolution. And although we touched on privateers and state marines before, we focused mostly on actions by continental marines. State and privateer marines were still considered marines, and they contributed to the success of the United States in naval warfare, in their own way. Except for a few significant battles, state and privateer marines served different missions. However, the burden of these two groups was arguably more significant than the continental marines. Some of our first episodes discuss the original 13 colonies and their contributions to the war efforts. Each colony acted as an independent state, and except for Delaware and New Jersey, had their own navy for defending local waters. Although the Continental Fleet was the largest, some states had a considerable navy. Connecticut, Maryland, Massachusetts, South Carolina, and Virginia had the most substantial fleet compared to the other colonies. Georgia had one of the smallest fleets, and their navy consisted of four galleys. However, every ship needed men, and each state recruited sailors and marines for the mission. Congress had the most significant budget, which meant more resources to build larger ships. These ships had the ability to navigate deeper waters and transatlantic voyages. The purpose of the state and privateer marines was to defend seaports, trade routes, and coastlines. Some states with larger fleets procured vessels that could handle the dangers of sailing into deeper waters, but naval warfare wasn't the primary concern of these ships. Escorting local merchant ships and defending local coastlines from British scout vessels had priority. Since their mission was different, their ships were usually smaller and designed with mobility and speed in mind. The layout of state, naval, and marine forces was similar for most of the 13 states. Men were most likely residents and had some other form of military service. Often they were veterans of regional conflicts, served as militiamen, or had previous experience fighting for the British. Their familiarity with the land and their prior military experience gave them an exceptional understanding of the requirements needed to defend their states. They helped with local defenses, built the appropriate structures, and helped with the regional strategy to protect their land. Most state fleets consisted of a smaller vessel, such as galleys and barges. They were usually outfitted with a couple of smaller cannons and held between 65 to 80 men. Each man was paid for his service as well. The pay was a little less in Continental Marines. The compensation for state drummers and fifers in the Marines was $6, compared to $7 and one-third dollars for their Continental counterparts. Every state private was paid $5 and one-third dollars compared to the Continental Marines' six and two-thirds. The uniforms were different as well, 
and state marines wore blue hunting shirts as their uniform. Similar to the Continental Marines, states had a hard time finding recruits to serve on board their galleys. Maryland had one of the largest fleets, and they had similar annoyances with staffing their vessels. The bounties and incentives offered to seamen and marines did not increase their recruiting numbers. This challenge resulted in Maryland selling all of her ships except for three galleys. Despite the lower pay and recruiting challenges, there were no shortages of heroic tales for state marines. For example, Levi Handy was commissioned as captain of marines for the state of Maryland and appointed to serve on the barge protector. Handy had previous experience as lieutenant in the 4th Maryland Battalion and 5th Maryland Battalion as a captain. On November 30, 1782, during the Battle of Kedges Strait, Handy was severely wounded and almost died. Colonel John Cropper, a volunteer on board the Protector, stated he nobly fought with one arm after the loss of the other. Out of 65 men on board the vessel, 25 died, 29 wounded, and only 11 were untouched. Although most state marines had the responsibility of guarding coastal waters, there were a couple of exceptions. In Virginia, defending the Ohio Valley was a task given to a small group of marines. Marines built small gondolas and galleys, armed with cannons to patrol this area. The small force of marines also identified critical locations throughout the Ohio Valley, and stood up posts to help with their defenses. The gondolas turned out to be a failure and were defenseless against ambushes during amphibious landings. The galleys didn't have this vulnerability, and included features that seemed to be original compared to other ships during the American Revolution. Each galley had gunnels about 48 inches high and was thick enough to protect the marines from incoming musket fire and arrows. The galleys also had retractable gunnels on hinges and could be raised and lowered as needed. Marines in the Ohio Valley faced a threat Continental Marines rarely encountered, Native Americans. British captains recruited a Native American army of over 1,000 men to counter the Marines and other American forces in the Ohio Valley. In 1782, 250 Native Americans and 40 British Loyalists attacked Fort Henry. The Marines helped defend the fort, but their ship was eventually destroyed and sank. Marines who survived the attack were sent to the Illinois Regiment to continue their service in the Army. On another note, there is an excellent story about Betty Zane. She wasn't a Marine, but did provide a heroic service during this battle. During the initial attack on Fort Henry, all local citizens rushed into the fort without considering bringing gunpowder for the fight. During the attack, Zane left the fort, rushed towards her brother's house, and returned with enough gunpowder to last throughout the battle. The British fired multiple shots at her while she was returning to the fort. Although the incoming fire pierced her clothes, she was never personally hit and sustained no injuries. Privateer Marines were a different breed of Marines. There were about 800 vessels commissioned as privateers, about 1,700 letters of marks, and hundreds if not thousands of other private ships of war. Benjamin Franklin even owned a privateer ship. There was a lot of money to be made during this war, and everyone wanted a piece of it. Privateers were like defense contractors at the time. The Continental Congress recognized them and authorized privateers to help with war efforts. The pay was higher than the government service, and they tended to sidestep a lot of the government bureaucracy 
that most other Marines faced. They also didn't have the same recruiting challenges like state and continental Marines, since the pay was higher and service was more flexible. Commodore Esek Hopkins estimated that privateers recruited a third of sailors and Marines serving in the Continental Navy. Privateers were so successful at recruiting that Congress periodically placed a moratorium on recruiting in towns that have not met their recruiting quota. The pay was so promising that men from all walks of life served as privateer Marines. This included doctors, lawyers, politicians, and even ministers took advantage of the spoils. There is even evidence of a woman serving on board one of the privateer vessels. During the capture of the schooner Revenge, British privateers identified one of the, quote, gentlemen volunteers, as female. From the start of the American Revolution, hundreds of privateer ships roamed the seas, which made up for the lack of a continental navy and helped the United States develop and prepare for naval warfare. Privateers rarely received credit for their service. Their early contributions undoubtedly had a positive impact on early American naval warfare. While Congress was discussing what a Continental Navy should look like, privateers were already patrolling the coast, disrupting enemy supply lines, interrupting enemy communication, and bringing in millions of dollars in supplies and resources to the colonies. Every state used bonded privateer men. Pennsylvania had over 500 vessels alone. The three American commissioners in Paris and the Continental agent in the West Indies also took advantage of privateers and commissioned ships. The total amount of privateer vessels isn't exactly known, but many historians believe that the number is around 3,000 vessels. 3,000 vessels would easily mean more than 100,000 sailors and marines serving on board these ships during the American Revolution. It's difficult to guess the amount of marines on privateer vessels. The concept of a marine wasn't unique to the United States, and many countries had their own marines. But the United States was relatively new, and the formal title of marine wasn't initially used. Privateer marines were known as many different names. Gentlemen sailors, gentlemen volunteers, and landsmen are a few. Regardless of the names given at the time, the mission of these men was certainly marine-like. They conducted small amphibious landings, provided protection on board the ship in which they served, and participated in boarding raids. Privateers weren't known for their documentation, and either didn't record their conflicts and voyages, or their records were lost through time. Marines serving on board privateer vessels traveled throughout the globe. They visited England, France, Ireland, Scotland, Spain, and the West Indies. They fought, died, and were taken prisoner as well. This had an impact on privateers, and while they still served until the end of the war, their numbers started to dwindle as well. As 1781 came to an end, the number of privateer and state marines dropped, and continental marines only had two detachments serving. The war took a toll on the colonies. The country was nearing bankruptcy, and only two frigates remained, the Alliance and the Dean. Robert Morris focused his attention on the two frigates. The Alliance was heavily damaged and required a lot of repairs. Construction was completed in October, and the captains of the two ships immediately began a large recruiting campaign to attract a new crew. Their tactic was to convince men that the Navy and Marines were superior to any other service, 
and enlisting opened up the opportunity for bounties and other riches. Both enlisted and officers were entitled to prizes of any ship captured. The two captains decided to up the rewards. Now, officers and enlisted were entitled to the prizes of any ship captured. They were also privy to $20 for any gun taken and $10 for every prisoner of war taken, and half the value of any merchantman and their cargo. At the very least, each man received $10 just for enlisting. The pay was bumped to $8 per month, and bounties were paid in silver or gold, not in continental money. This was an important move, because many thought that the continental currency was worthless. Men received clothing, and any sailor or marines injured in action received another $200 bonus. Men disabled in service were provided half their pay for the rest of their life. All of these allurements helped with recruitment, and Marine Captain Matthew Park and Lieutenant Thomas Elwood quickly saw their numbers rise. On December 10th, the Marquis de Lafayette arrived in Boston. The city celebrated the ship's arrival, but the crew of the Alliance didn't share in the enthusiasm. The Marquis didn't stay for long and headed towards France carrying Lafayette. The Alliance was tasked with escorting the ship to Europe. She was specifically ordered to avoid all enemy vessels. This order was an issue. The captains of the Alliance and the Dean just completed an extensive recruiting campaign that promised numerous bounties and a great adventure, but this promise was no longer the case. The crew's first mission had little reward. On Christmas Day, the Alliance started her voyage towards France. The trip was nothing to write home about, and the only activity was the random complaints by sailors and marines about the lack of prizes. After their arrival in France, the Alliance received additional orders from Benjamin Franklin, tasking the ship to head to Brest to pick up some public goods and head back to the States. The captain of the Alliance attempted to push back on these orders, but he was not successful and the Alliance headed out to sea on March 16, 1782. The return voyage was challenging and she encountered daily strong winds that constantly forced the ship off course. The crew was losing their patience as well, and many fights broke out. They occasionally spotted a ship, but none belonged to the enemy. She arrived in New London, Connecticut on May 13th. At this point, the crew had enough. They were at the brink of mutiny and demanded back pay and shore leave. The committee promised back pay, but shore leave was denied because the committee was worried about desertion. Sailors and marines stewed over this decision for three days, and on the 16th, rushed the deck of the ship. Marine Captain Matthew Park quickly armed the officers on deck, and they were able to stop the attack and push the men below. This did little to stop the mutineers. While they were below deck, they rioted and smashed everything in sight. The Alliance stayed in New London Harbor for half the summer. On August 4th, she finally headed out to sea for the promised prize money. In less than three hours, she ran into another ship filled with lumber and fish. The ship was captured and returned to port. The cargo in the ship wasn't too valuable, but capturing a ship immediately after heading out to sea was not a bad start. Six days later, the Alliance captured another prize. It was the Polly. She was heading to Halifax and filled with brown sugar, molasses, onions, and limes. The cargo was another worthless load, 
but at least prizes were being captured during this voyage. She continued to sail and capture prizes until October. On the 17th, she headed back to France to unload the four prizes she captured during her trip. Captured prisoners were transferred to shore, repairs started for any damage, and men received an advance on the prize money for the four captured ships. Original estimates suggested that each person on the ship should receive up to 300 guineas per person, but they only received 25, and about the same value in dry goods. The enlisted men didn't seem to mind, but officers had a problem with the amount provided for their effort. Marine Captain Matthew Park experienced a lot during his time in the Marines. He was usually on the right side of history and fought multiple mutiny attempts and corrupt naval captains. But he had enough. He served on the Alliance for almost four years and received very little pay. He and five other officers were staying at an inn in France and would not go on board without two-thirds of their promised wages. The captain of the Alliance didn't have the money to pay his officers, so there was little that he could do. He responded to Captain Park by saying that if the officers weren't on the Alliance by 1600 that afternoon, all six of them would face consequences. Park refused to follow orders and was placed under arrest and faced a court-martial back in the States. The six officers were left behind as the Alliance sailed off for Martinique. Except for some harsh weather, the Alliance had a relatively easy voyage back across the Atlantic. On January 13th, the Alliance was off again with orders to Havana. They were to pick up some money, then head to Philadelphia and deliver the funds to Congress. The Alliance partnered with the Duc de Lozon, and the two ships sailed from Havana to Philadelphia. On March 10th, the convoy ran into three British ships. The Alliance was cautious with her ammunition, and Captain Barry visited each gun on the main deck and gave the orders to hold fire until the British ships were right alongside. At 11.50, everything lined up, and the Alliance launched her first volley at the Sybil. The damage was devastating for the enemy, but the British did not surrender. Both ships continued to fire at each other. The Alliance took heavy damage, but miraculously, casualties were very low, and only 10 men were wounded. After 30 minutes of intense battle, the Sybil also took heavy damage. Casualty numbers for the Sybil aren't consistent, but between 2 to 37 men were killed, and between 6 to 40 were wounded. The Sybil was the faster of the two, and she changed course and started her escape. The Alliance gave chase, but could not keep up. She continued on her voyage with very little resistance. In March 1783, the Alliance dropped anchor and received word that Great Britain and the United States reached a peace settlement. Forty out of the remaining 41 Marines received discharges. The only exception was Lieutenant Thomas Elwood, who continued to serve on board the Alliance to maintain the appearance of a public ship. Elwood took inventory of all supplies on the ship. The Alliance had one final mission. Sail to Virginia, pick up a shipment of tobacco, and head to Amsterdam to deliver. However, she didn't make it far. The Alliance was redirected to Philadelphia after sustaining damage while traveling through the Chesapeake. On September 5th, she was examined, found to be too damaged for repairs, and would not travel to Amsterdam. The Alliance was symbolic to the United States and her citizens, 
This ship participated in numerous battles, had multiple victories, and was proved to be a worthy vessel. However, the cost of war was high, and the country did not have the necessary funds to keep her in service. Many citizens also believed that all naval expenses should stop now that the war was over. In August 1785, the United States sold the Alliance an auction. With the service of the last two ships concluding, and with Lieutenant Thomas Elwood serving as the last Marine of the American Revolution, the story of the Marines come to an end. During our next episode, we'll get into disbanding the Continental Marines and some statistics about the American Revolution. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we complete the story of Marines during the American Revolution. We'll dig into the decision to disband the Continental Marines, as well as some statistics about the war. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.